Hello and welcome back to another episode of Integrating Self. I'm joined today by Pastor Nim, or full name Nimrod, but nickname Pastor Nim, who is the lead pastor at Church in the Valley, just on the outskirts of Vancouver, British Columbia. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. Appreciate it. Now, you may have noticed through your ears, slight accents. So Pastor Nim, where where are you from? I'm excited about this. <laughs> yeah, I was born in New Zealand, uh, in Wellington, a small little place called Lower Hutt. And I left there when I was four and then moved to Sydney, Australia. And that's where I grew up most of my life, was in Sydney, Australia. You have the cool Aussie accent, which <laughs> always jealous of. Sounds so awesome. So how how long have you been at uh, Church in the Valley or CIV as it's also known as? Yeah, I've been to CIV now for about about fifteen months, so not too long. So it's the first time I've been outside of Australia. Um, so it's been an exciting and uh, adventurous journey so far. You're you're handling the Canadian winters. Well, I don't know if handling is. <laughs> The word that I would use, but um, now we were excited because our first Christmas was a white Christmas, and so we were like letting our neighbors know how excited we were, but we saw their disappointment because they don't like it here in yeah. uh, British Columbia. So we we learned quickly not to celebrate the snow. So <laughs> we kept <laughs> our excitement just to ourselves, but we enjoyed the white Christmas. So at the moment, we enjoy it. Yeah, it's very much a Vancouver thing as a coastal city not to want the snow because as soon as you step away from Vancouver people don't mind <laughs> <laughs> they're used to it so one of the the cool things I enjoy about um, your sermons is you often give a lot of stories of your youth and growing up I know the other month you gave a sermon of being in jail of going before a judge and some of these things so you're you're very open with where you've been and have you gone? Where have you gone? And these things, which is always appreciative. So I was very excited to to hear more of these mm-hmm. amazing stories. Um, your cultural background being Samoan and growing up not just in Australia but Sydney, Australia, mm-hmm. which I learned the other day has like one quarter of the entire population between Sydney and between Sydney and Melbourne is like half the population of Australia. Yes. Yes. So start us off with like, what is it like, what was it like for you growing up in a major um, well-known city in kind of an Australian context while being Samoan? Well, it was fun growing up where I grew up. Like I grew up in like Bankstown area in Sydney. So it was very multicultural. So there was a lot of like, you know, Middle Eastern people, like the Egyptians, uh, Lebanese, like it was fun, you know, it was a real multicultural town. So you kind of just looked around and everybody was from outside of Australia, but, you know, great food, great smells. It was, it was fun. As a kid, it was growing up, it was fun hanging out with everybody, you know, in your town. But once you start to get into your, as I was starting to get into like my teenage years, that's when it was really, it became, um, it wasn't so much fun anymore because I grew up in a time where I was always 
racially profiled. It didn't matter where I went, you know, we would always be, um, you know, attacked by police or the teachers would always kind of judge us, you know, if something went missing, you know, in the classroom, it would always be the colour guys that would, you know, be called out first. And so you kind of grow up in that environment and, you know, you start to, <clears throat> for me, I, I, I did not like the police because, you know, we were, we were often beaten up by them. You know, even if you weren't doing anything, you're just standing at a park, they will just assume that you were up to no good and then you will get beaten up or they'll put a phone book on you and beat you with bats. You know, like it was, it was crazy growing up. Um, the good thing about it growing up was eventually I met my girlfriend, who's my wife now, and she is white. And so for her to kind of journey with me you know, when I'm about 17 years of age, I I was always doubting, like, is this really happening? Like, is this really my world? And so to have her come with me to the shops and then have the announcement over the speaker, you know, security in aisle four or whatever, and I'm, I'm in aisle four, you know, or security follow you around, you know, it was good for her to see it. And then, you know, we would be on a train and then ticket guard will come through and would walk past everybody but stop at me and go, can I see your ticket? And my girlfriend's sitting right next to me. So she pulls out her ticket and they're like, no, you don't, you're okay. They check my ticket and then move on. So like this is a, a almost, it felt like it was daily. But this is the environment I grew up in. And so one time I was driving her car uh, and she grew up in a more affluent area. So I'm in her, I'm in her town driving her car, and I see this police turn around. And I go to my girlfriend, I said, they're coming back for me, because that's my world. And she's like, nah, nah, they're not coming back for you. You know, maybe you've watched too many movies, was what she said. And then sure enough, the blue and red lights go on, they pull me over, they pull me out, pull her out, search the car, you know, there's no drugs there, then they search me, strip search me, and then we jump back in the car and I'm angry because I'm embarrassed. This is my girlfriend. And then she turned to me and she said, that, that was so much fun because it was the first time for her. It was wow. the first time for her. And then when she looked at me and she realized it wasn't fun for me, that's when she started, that's when her eyes opened. And now she started to look around in my world and go, this is not fair. This is like, this is just not right. You know, like she could walk around and not be profiled and I walk around and I get profiled. So that was the, the, that was the environment I grew up in, you know? So I was a very defensive. I was always, you know, I had a lack of trust for white people because of what I grew up with. And so that kind of played in my, my upbringing, you know, and that made me, that made me stick to my people, you know, stick to my family, to my Samoan community to to the other ethnic groups that look like me that were brown like me you know and that's what forced us to kind of we all stay together because it was all all our experiences were the same so that was the kind of environment i grew up i'm not going to say um all white people were like that that's you know that was a constant reoccurring theme uh when in the town that i grew up and i grew up in bagstown and then my church eventually was in mount Jewett. and if you look up Sydney, Australia, and ask people where the ghetto is, they'll tell you it's Mount Jewett. 
right? The code number 2770. Like, that's where we grew up. So we always got profiled. And, uh, you know, growing up, you're just defensive. When you get older and you reflect, you realize how much that affected you, you know, and how much it actually hurt and left a scar. So I had to do a lot of soul searching to kind of forgive these people because I don't know why they chose to do it, but I didn't want that stuff hanging over me because I had to work with white people. I had to grow with white people. I had to build relationship with white people. And I didn't want my upbringing to take others that were just seeing the good in me. You know, and I'm grateful that I'm at a place where, you know, that my upbringing hasn't tainted my view, you know, to kind of say, hey, all white people are the same because they're definitely not, you know. And but that took a lot of soul searching counseling, you know, to help me get over that. But it definitely hurt me, um, you know, growing up. So that's my upbringing. Well, I don't know if there's much um, greater sense of that than your girlfriend being excited about getting the police search. That's. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that's definitely a sharp contrast between the two realities. Because yeah, I, I've never been police searched. the The few interactions I've had, they've always been really nice to me. I know I got into a car accident because I didn't see a stop sign. I was hidden behind a bush, and the police officer told my mom to take it really easy on me, like he was like, you know, be really nice to your kid, like. And so, if I were to come into a conversation. And being like, oh, no, the police are actually really nice, right? Like, it could be the same thing like your girlfriend was sharing there, too. And I think that's the importance is those moments where you step into somebody else's shoe and realize, like, there, there's something more. And we can't, like you said, you can't project that everyone's the same. But we also can't say everyone's the same as me, right? Like, yes, I think that's a very big key because we can stereotype people based on external things or on our own experiences. And I find that very harmful. So um, I was wondering too, because you had done a sermon where you shared about how you started going to church because it was your girlfriend's church. She invited you. So what was, what was that like that step into a church setting? Did you find the, the racism there or what was like that, growing into a faith community. Yeah, that was a great church, man. And I'll shout them out, uh, Gorston Seventh-day Adventist Church in Sydney. That was the church that won me back into the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you know, and you heard the story, you know, I was I was out partying Friday night because I knew that my girlfriend, we were taking turns choosing dates and she chose her date to be church. And so, to be a part of that church, it was a, a mostly white church, but they embraced me, you know, like they, they, I was seen at that church, you know, I wasn't, I was never asked to try to be like them. I was never asked to try to see things like them. I was just embraced and loved as a colored Samoan man, you know, and they would ask a lot of questions to understand why I do certain things and why I see things in a certain way or why I, I saw that in the text. And so it was such a healthy dialogue, learning, you know, how to break down a Sabbath school lesson at that church. And, and so for me, it was such an accepting church, loving church. And when I found that, I realized I had judged God based on some of the things I didn't like with the church I grew up in that was very conservative. And 
this church just really loved me into faith. And I saw a faith community, you know, except a young man with all his uh, flaws. But then the key to it too was they gave me the opportunity to serve. You know, I became Sabbath school leader, youth leader, you know, like, and I wasn't even ready for it. And so, you know, I take, I, I give them a lot of credit. So you saw even two differences because you grew up in a different church. You said a more conservative church compared to the one that your girlfriend invited you. So what what were some of the differences? Because it seems like those differences made a huge impact. One kind of pushed you away and one brought you in. So what were some of the things that had pushed you away? Yeah, so I, I grew up in a, a small church, which we I loved it. Like there was a lot of good things at this church. It was very family-oriented, great food. You know, we were always together as a community, you know, and together Wednesday, Friday, Saturday all day, play games Saturday night, touch football Sunday morning. I loved it. But they would judge us as young people. And rather than having the grace and the forgiveness to accept some of our flaws as young people, we were disciplined. You know, we were either physically disciplined or we were, you know, voted into censorship by the church board or the business meeting so that you weren't allowed to come back. And if some of us, like some of my age group, you know, they got pregnant outside of marriage and so they wanted to get married in the church. And then they said no, because it was out of wedlock. Um, and that hurt, our, you know, our, my friends, because this was their church rejecting them. One time I got a big fat lip, you know, because I was being a clown in Sabbath school, but I was like 10 years old. And the deacon gave me a good punch and, and, and it just fattened up my lip, you know, because that was his way of telling me to keep quiet. And so that was the church I grew up in that, that God ruled by with an iron fist, and that uh, I couldn't be accepted as who you know as I was. I needed to pretend to be, you know, somebody so that they could accept me. And so that was tough. And then you get to this church that's not a Samoan church; it's a it's a mostly white church that accepted this this kid that was still wrestling with addictions. You know, that was still trying to figure out what does it mean to be a man. You know, they could see the trouble kid when I was at church, but they never judged me. They just provided an atmosphere of nurturing, you know, um, and guidance. And then eventually, because I kept coming to church, they would then give me leadership roles and trusted me before I was ready. And that's how I was able to then come into the faith. And that's the contrast between the two churches. And so a lot of the times when I'm now as a minister, I make sure that our young people receive the love of that second church because I know that's what brought me in and I hope that that's what could keep not only our young people but grow them in the church as well. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. I, I've seen the example of when you allow people to stumble and fall but still have value in leadership and then bringing their ideas and being heard. I mean, ultimately, that's also what kept me in was the very first sermon I got to do back in Kelowna. I, I I remember after that sermon going, oh my goodness, like I have value. I got to do the pinnacle thing of church. Everyone had to listen to me for 20 minutes. <laughs> and it, I also got to do the music. 
And I became, I, I remember that Saturday in the, the following week realizing like, oh, I, I get to not just be a consumer, but somebody that's part, like, this is what it means. Mm-hmm. Right. But of course, there's a lot of trust in that. I, um, I remember years later asking that pastor, like, what on earth were you thinking, man? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, Kevin, it was, it was a risk worth taking. And I mean, now I'm becoming a chaplain and I'm doing it like, and like, so yeah, I think that's so important, but it takes, it takes a lot of grace and not having fear of difference, a failure. Like we could become a very highly produced church where everything is timed and really well. And everyone says everything eloquently. So if you put somebody up there for the first time, right. And so that's something I want, we could, I want to um, ask as well is, what does it take, what kind of mindset or church culture does it take to allow people to stumble, to fall, to even utterly fail in their first sermon, and yet to instill value through that compared to, you know, um, churches that have really nice sound system, really nice lights, the professional style singing, everything is prompt-based, it's all well-timed. Like, to me, you're kind of poking at this spectrum of you're either a highly produced special, um, I shouldn't say special, but like very well-organized thing compared to what accepted you in this way of you, you're not really ready, but we're going to let you try. Because mm-hmm. it seems that also kind of ties into a small church that lets you do things compared to a big church that everything is, you know, manufactured and produced really well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I guess, <clears throat> like, you know, this year, we, we put up our, some of our members up to preach. And it was their first time preaching. And I guess the answer to your question is always going to come back to why. Why would I have one of our pastors disciple these two, you know, strong women and how to preach? help them put their content together. Why do we spend that time to then put them up on the pulpit on a stage that's big like CIV with the risk that they could fail? You know, and, and our why here at CIV is that our pastor's job for us is not to build a platform for us. You know, our job as, as pastors is other-centered. It's not about us. You know, our fruit, as, as pastoral ministry should be growing on other people's trees. So it's not about us. So we got to build platform and put other people on it. So that's the why for us. So then, then we don't just put people up there for the sake of it. We want to set them up to win. So that's why we have the mentoring that they come through. Okay. We look at their sermons. We, we help them. They preach it out loud. We take them through the motions that some of us go through as preachers. And then when we, when we trust them with the pulpit and they, and they crush it. And then you gotta, you gotta deal with your own pride. Cause now you're like, she just spoke better than me. You know, I, I could have worked myself out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then you, you quickly realize that, you know, a lot of pastors won't do this, you know, won't fulfill their role as disciple makers because other people that you disciple may be better than you. And you have to be okay with not being the best in your church because you're fulfilling your biblical mandate, and that is to disciple the people, to equip the people for ministry. And so if you have that as a why for us, 
one of the sayings we have at CRV is, if you're heading towards vision and you fail, you fail forward. So if they happen to fail at preaching, for me and my team, that's okay. They failed forward because what we want is to see more and more members be up there preaching so that if we work ourselves out of a job, then we've literally done our job, you know, as, as ministers. And then that's the goal for us. It's not to hog the platform for me and to have people around the world go, look at me, look at me. No, look at our membership. Look how cool our membership is. Look at the talent that God has given to us. And so I would say to create an atmosphere of, of accepting failure starts from the top and, and having an attitude of, Hey, you failed, but let's move forward, you know, and that requires grace and, and it has to start with me. And hopefully I'm creating that. And that's such a, a beautiful connection to your experience at your girlfriend's church to how you're leading now. So, you know, and that's what's really cool about these conversations is you get to kind of peek behind the do, the doings and thinkings of a pastor. It's like, okay, where's their story come out? Because that's who we are. We are a collection of stories. And so it's really cool to see that. And the 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 link I have been wondering and often ask is um, between your girlfriend's church and your work now in the middle when did you decide to become a pastor? How did that unfold from a kid who kind of left the church, kind of came back in? Like you said, you knew you had to work with white people. You had to work through the history of police brutality. So how did that uh, cl- um, cl- climax into, I'm going to be a pastor? Yeah, it was, uh, I was, I never dreamed about being a a minister. It was never in my mind. It was, and what I'm about to share, I don't know how to explain it. And so I don't, I try not to tell it too often because I don't, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. But I went out partying, right? And so I come home and I'm heavily intoxicated and I come home early in the morning and I'm sleeping and I kind of felt like I heard my wife calling me. So I kept waking her up, you know? And then I kept waking her up and she's like, just go to bed, you're just drunk. So then because I grew up in the church, I remember that story, you know, Samuel hearing, you know, so I'm thinking, nah, that can't be happening. Like, surely not. Anyway, I closed my eyes and I just said, if it's really you, you need to remove the intoxication because I won't be able to hear you nor understand you. And in that moment, in that instant, it was gone. And so I freaked out. I ran out to the other room and I just kind of laid on the ground crying. And I cried all the way to the morning. And when my wife got up, I was cooking breakfast with a big smile. And she's kind of like, oh, what's happening? <laughs> and she's like, I can smell you, but you don't look, you know? And then I said, I think I'm going to have to go and study to be a minister. And I will never forget the word she said. She goes, about time. <laughs> And I turned to her and I said, what do you mean about time? She goes, well, God told me that you were going to be a minister. And then your life just went the other way. And I thought to myself, Lord, you've got to be joking. There's no way this guy is going to be a minister until that year when, when I said, hey, I'm better sign up. So I signed up and then I went to Avondale University 
And then, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. But that's that's what happened. It was enough to convince me, you know, God moves supernaturally for me, and I've just been dedicated to this calling ever since then. And how has your um, cultural background, like being Samoan and some of that history, how has that been carried forward? Like, what was it like going to Avondale, or how did you work that through what you had said earlier about working with white people? So what was that kind of feeding into when you started studying your theology degree? So when I started studying, um, you know, I was healed of, you know, obviously from my, you know, um, from my childhood upbringing, you know, I, I had to work, you know, in corporate, you're dealing with, you know, a lot of white people and, and it was, I knew I was healed from it. I was making inroads, you know, in my life previous to, to church. When I arrived at university, it was good because it was multicultural. There was a group of Samoans there, so we, we would always hang out and, and have fun. But I couldn't hang out with them too often because you, you just end up laughing and playing sports and eating, and you're not doing your work. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the cultural side, right? Like, we, everything is going to be okay. We can just take our time, you know. There's another day we can do our assignments. Isn't um, that called so that uh... was, isn't that just called island time? Because the Philippines <laughs> are the same way. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And you always hear island time, Filipino time. Yeah. So just laid back people, you know. So it was really good. I really enjoyed university um, because it was so diverse. And I had a lot of fun there learning. Um, I was challenged at university. You know, they really push you to really think for yourself. And... It was it was a tough time, but it was a great time, you know, learning and being prepared for ministry. And you know, Avondale did such a great job, you know, in preparing us and um, and challenging us to think different and not to just be the same, you know, to think for yourself. And so, yeah, it was a great time going to university. And with that too, I had been wondering. Um, being that Adventism started in the States and it has a very Americanism to it. Um, Pastor Icky in an earlier episode referred to it as the uh, residue, so to speak. What was it like studying and, and getting into a denomination that does have very strong Americanisms? In another episode, um, we had Pastor Gene talk about the experience of the church still being part of the colonial effort in Kenya. So what was it like for you in Australia, which has a very thick history of colonialism. I know they're going through truth and reconciliation with First um, Nations there. So mm -hmm. what was the, the culture like that? You're Samoan at a diverse university, but in a more American white style of Christianity. What was all those pieces like for you? Um, if... if if I was to just speak frankly, right, you you quickly learn that pastoral ministry is a is a white man's game. Right, that I have to learn to to be a certain way to fit into that norm. Because you, if you if if I'm gonna stick too much to my culture, then you're gonna be seen as lazy, just you know, going to be too, seen as you have too much fun, you joke around a lot, 
And that's just me being Samoan, you know. So I remember the first. Oh, I shouldn't give timelines, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I remember one of the churches I went to, and you know there was a there was business people, you know, in in the board, executive people, and I could see it on their faces when I was at church saying, "Hey, we've got our first board meeting. Looking forward to it." And so when I arrived to this board meeting, the first thing I said to them was. I know you see Samoan, and I know they're a stereotype, whatever it is that's happening for you in your mind, but understand that this guy, as a Samoan, will be on time. We will finish on time. You will get the meeting notes on time. I'm not one to run late. And as I'm listing all these things, you see them just kind of start to relax. Like, okay, we, we, we might be able to trust this guy, you know. And so then my actions were able to prove them that I was a man of my word, that I was those things, that I was going to be on time, that I was going to hand things in on time, that, you know, my sermons, if, if the time was given to me 30 minutes, I was going to be 30 minutes. Like, so they bought into my leadership because I learned in university that you can't truly be who you are when you get up in, in ministry because it's governed by white men. It's it's led by white men. And, you know, as a Samoan, you can't, there's no conference where I look at and there's a there's been a Samoan president, you know, we're rare, you know, so you can't dream for that because you don't see it. You see it in New Zealand because there's a lot of Samoan and Pacific Islanders there. And you can dream about it if you're working in the islands, like in, in the Samoan islands or, you know. But in Australia, for me, that's not a reality because every president's white. You know, it's most of the leadership is white. And until recently, we got a general secretary at our division who's not white. You know, he, he was a Pacific Islander. And when that happened, it was such a big deal. You know, we celebrated it. I remember one of the churches I was called to lead was the university church, Avondale University Church. So I've come out and then I'm called there to be the lead pastor. And I didn't realize how big of a deal it was till we have these union meetings where all pastors from our union are there. And our senior Samoan pastors have called all of us together. And unbeknown to me, they put me in the middle and they start giving speeches about how I'm the first Samoan to be the lead pastor of Avenel University Church and how proud they were to be a man of color from the Pacific Nations and you represent your people. And I'm crying because I didn't realize how big of a deal because I just fell into the system and just worked the system. But to my people, this was such a big deal because you're the first to go in there, that this system trusts you, you know? And that's when I realized that what I had seen was right. I needed to be something in order to be seen that I could be an equal to them you know, that I could lead just as strong as any other white man uh, or white leader, you know. And uh, and for my people to do that, I realized there is a divide. You know, this is a big deal that one of them that looks like them was given such a prestigious opportunity. And so that was a, a very big deal for me. And I don't hate it. That's just the system. You know, that it is what it is. You know, that's not going to change me from working hard and trying to get better. Um I just, I just hope that eventually someday that there will be a Samoan president in, in Australia 
you know, or Samoan in those big roles because to my people, just to get the lead pastor of the university church, imagine when they see somebody in those big roles in a conference, you know, in Australia. We're going to celebrate it, you know, because it's a big deal for us. But in saying that, I should say, we were also appreciative of the missionary work of the white person because if it wasn't for them to risk their lives and their families to come to the Pacific Islands, we wouldn't be part ministers today. You know, so we have to give credit there too. You know, it's not just one way. We have to thank them for, for having the discernment, the courage to leave America and to leave Australia and to minister to the Pacific Islanders. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. So that was my answer. I know, and it's, it's amazing because that's a continual theme that has come up in these episodes is representation. People having seen a female pastor or having seen somebody of color before them and realizing, oh, it's something I can do. <laughs> and then, which, which is a great thing. And it, and it leads me to wonder often as well, because we have um, Jesus' teaching of the question, well, who is my family? Right. And, and what it can lead to. I, I've experienced this as a teacher and this, you know, the overusage of family. I've been wondering too, where does church family fall into cultural family? Because you're even saying my people in referring to strictly Samoans opposed to church members. And yet yep. Jesus teaches us, you know, those who do my will are my family. Yeah. So how do we understand that text in the, the dynamic nature of cultural understanding in exchange? Because on one hand, we could say it doesn't matter who your pastor is. He can be he or she can be white. Get you know, like we're all one family. Why do you even care about your Samoan heritage? But then on the other side, it's like no, it is important, right? If we are truly all family, then the white person shouldn't mind the Samoan pastor. So I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. how do you see that kind of text of this? re-understanding a family not being cultural or bloodlines as opposed to just the will of God? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think that's a that's a wrestle that I think many churches don't realize that they're, they're in. You know, that the family of God takes precedence, you know, over, over any culture, you know. And for me, I feel like I'm so privileged because to be a Samoan, there's so much about our community that prepares me to lead a church in terms of building community. Because in my, in my upbringing, I don't know if it's just isolated to the Samoans I grew up with, but the way we do community is anybody's welcome. It doesn't matter if you're Asian or white. Like if you are respectful to us, you're family. You know, like we have a lot of, of white friends that have got the Samoan tattoo and they've taken on our tribal tats. And, you know, some people think that's being disrespectful, disrespectful, but to a Samoan, that's high praise because we see you as part of our community. We don't see you as brown. We know you're white, but we've accepted you because we see you as family. And that really sets you up to be able to be, be able to challenge some of the norms that, you know, in a church, you know, that we don't have to just keep our norms at the exclusivity of other cultures. We can embrace the other cultures, you know, because 
those other cultures are going to enrich our community. But the challenge for Adventist communities that I that I've experienced is is having the the empathy, the willingness to have conversation. You know, because without having a conversation, you cannot understand and you cannot embrace, you know, other cultures and you don't learn. So one of the things at CRV that we do, one little thing, and it's it's helped us greatly, is when we put up the Bible text for people to turn to in their Bible, we choose different languages that are represented in the demographics when we did a survey. So we could have it up there that it's in English, John 1, 14, or it could be in Russian, you know, John 1, 14, or in Indonesian or Filipino. And for people just to see it, we didn't realize how much of an effect it was going to have. But the amount of times people will come to you after and say, hey, man, I was so good to see my language up there. What they're really saying was, I'm seen. At this church, I'm seen. I'm an Indonesian, but they see me. I'm Russian, they see me. I'm Ukrainian, they see me. I'm Chinese, they see me. Just one little thing that we learned from Exponential that I went to a multi-ethnic lead, uh, leadership you know, seminar, and I took that away, and I said to my team, that's what we're doing. I'm going to put one slide up there and, and showcase the different cultures. Now, what I also do is I sit with the Russians. I spend time with them. You know, I've gone to their cyber school. Now, I don't understand it, but what I'm saying to them is, you're my people too, and I'm your pastor. You know, I go to the Spanish Sabbath school. I couldn't understand a word, but I can see the English Bible verses, and I turn to those Bible verses, but I can't understand anything else. But again, I'm saying, you're my people, and I'm your pastor. You know, and to listen to them. I was invited to the Christmas party for the Spanish group. And I went there, you know, hitting piñatas and eating food. It was so much fun. But again, I'm just letting them know, I see you. You know, I see you here. And I'm your pastor. And so those little things of just listening and being a part of those little communities within the big communities, it, it kind of helps them to come out and to be a part of the bigger group that is generally, by and large, white dominant. But if we can just have those conversations, then we can respect each other's cultures and then we can learn to live with each other. And so that's what we're trying to do here. And that's one of the ways that I've learned to try to build those uh, interconnectedness between the different cultures. But that comes straight out of being a Samoan. It's what I do naturally. And that's why I say that, you know, being a Samoan has really helped me to be able to build the, that community you know, element in churches that I've led. Well, and plus the um, the Russian and Spanish potlucks are generally the better ones at CIV as well. <laughs> like we we got to do a shout out. Those are those are some good good pierogies and the the Spanish food. Man, those are the potlucks you go to. <laughs> tell you what, that was my first time having you know the Russian Ukrainian food, and you know I think I went. I'm. I, I think I suffered from gluttony that day. <laughs> I think there was no temperance that day. It was just get in and try everything. It was amazing. It was amazing food. But I think, I mean, as we're laughing at it, but it brings out the point that we can often, like you said, the, the kind of the white dominated um, setting here, you know, 
Vancouver is a very diverse place, but in Canada, and of course with the um kind of the whiteness that Adventism has, you know, we can laugh and enjoy food, you know, and sometimes the cultural music, but when it comes to, like you said, leadership or understanding theology that isn't so European centric, I think, you know, mm-hmm. we can have a real hard time with that. Um, I got to be involved in um, a church where we were bringing on more indigenous perspective, First Nations in the small town. Yeah. And some people had a hard time with that because it, you know, re, Imagining the Bible, reimagining stories, understanding a new way of the same story, and all these cool ways, that can be very hard, right? When we built our identity of this is what it means to be Christian or Adventist, and then some Samoan pastor comes along and says, well, actually, you know, there's this other way. Your, your way isn't bad, but there's another way that, you know, is worth exploring. How do we help people not be fearful of that, right? Especially if you have somebody that's gone their whole life, you know, 60 plus years, or you've been instilled that this is the only way to read it. Because not only do we have the cultural piece, you know, we have the Adventist lens. The Great Controversy is a really good lens, but it's not the only lens to understand the Bible. So how do you, in your leadership, as you're bringing forth your Samoanness, how do you reduce fear or how do you help people walk through learning a new culture or learning a new perspective on something very fundamental, like how you perceive the Bible is a very core identity piece. And we, we want to be careful with that. So how do you see that happening, stepping into your role here in Vancouver or being just of a different culture? What are ways we can support people in that kind of perspective widening? Yeah. And I, I think what I've learned is, you know, when you when you have the white congregation, one of the things that I've learned is some of them don't truly understand what is, and it's coming from a place of innocence. And so sometimes when we talk about, you know, the, the cultural diversity, it can make them feel guilty, and they haven't really done anything, you know. So, like, if I give you an example for the First Nations in Australia, so for a long time, the Adventist church were preaching, you know, Jesus as the shepherd. you got to love him as the shepherd. Great verbiage, great vernacular. We know it as Adventists. He is the shepherd. But then it took somebody that became a pastor from the First Nations people who then educated us one time and said, we need to stay away from saying Jesus is the shepherd. Because the First Nations people, when they think shepherd, they think the white man that came and colonized Australia. So they think shepherd is somebody that has come in and terrorized their, their land and took it away from them. So then if you're preaching an evangelistic message that Jesus is the shepherd, you've got no chance of reaching the First Nations. <laughs> because in their minds, there's a different image that's conjuring up of shepherd. And so you've got to focus on the other imagery. Um, of of Jesus and avoid the shepherd. Not that you're trying to dumb down the message. You're just trying to speak in a way that the First Nations can hear it because you want them ultimately to be in a saving relationship with Jesus. And so I think, you know, to be able to build those things, you've got to do it in a way where, you know, you don't want the, the white people in your congregations to feel guilty for something that, one, they may not understand, two, they might, could be ignorant to, 
you got to find a way that you could do it that supports them, but then at the same time, having these conversations so that you don't interpret the Bible in a way that is hurting the members of the church. And that can only happen if you're having a conversation with them. And so that's why the first sermon I did here at CRV, I said, I'm an Australian who came through New Zealand, and I'm also Samoan. So if I say something that's offensive to you, I, I don't mean it. It could be just a misunderstanding of language. Give me grace. You know, call me. Let's talk. Share with me what did I say and how was it offensive to you so that I can learn. That was the very first sermon. And the way I did it was I made it, you know, tongue in cheek where I said, and if you, you know, have any complaints, you know, here's my email. And on the, e- on the screen was Pastor Abraham's email, you know. <laughs> so it was something serious, but then, you know, we kind of have a laugh about it. And then everyone's relaxed again. But I was being, I was being honest, like, let me know, you know. And so that's just keeping communication open with the church so that the more you dialogue with your members, the more you can learn. And the more you learn, the more you grow, and the more that you can actually build community like CIV that's very diverse at the moment. Yeah, it is a very diverse church. Like we've mentioned, the different uh, language groups. Um, Pastor Abraham, who's an awesome dude, um, is Mexican. And yeah. you have um, Pastor Roger, who always brings up his Brazilian side of things, which is, you know, <laughs> and... Um, and then there's the 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 new pastor of community who I haven't met yet. Pastor uh, Sabina, she's yes, Brazilian, and she's Brazilian, and so it it does it does show that, and I think that's one of the strengths CIV has is its um, diversity. It it shows that. I know last month there was the International Sabbath, which was cool. Everyone was dressed up in their um, cultural thing. Had I known, I would have worn my uh, barong, but. Didn't know it was happening. <laughs> <laughs> were you there for that? Yeah, I, I came. And, I, and my wife and I were like, oh, we should have worn our Filipino stuff. We would have fit right in. <laughs> so then how important is that? Because you, you mentioned it too for upper leadership. Because CIV is kind of a unique church in the British Columbia Conference for its size and its diversity. right? Because three kilometers down the road or 2.5 miles for the Americans is the Korean church, which is just straight Korean. And then you go to Surrey, the next city over, it's just straight Filipino church, the Surrey Filipino church. Or if you head out East, you get a lot less diversity. So what importance is it not just in the local, but in like conference or Canadian union, like how important is it at those levels to have a diverse leadership? Yeah, I think it's important. And I'll answer it in two ways. I, I think it's important because, again, it's, you know, for a culture to be seen, you know, for the minority, we celebrate those things. And to see somebody that looks like you in those offices, it, it means a big deal to us, you know. And so it just means that you are truly a part of this church, that you can be truly part of this community, that you can be truly proud to be an Adventist because it means that diversity, you know. But at the same time, I think, you know, that you don't just hire based on you're trying to create diversity. You you hire the best people, you know. And if the best people ends up being, you know, all one culture or a few little mixes here and there, okay, that's the best for them, you know. 
I think you make a, a big mistake when you're, you're trying to get the diversity and you've got to get one from there, one from there. You know, now, I just don't think that, I think that's a formula for disaster. You know, we should aim to try to get representation in there. Uh, but I think, first and foremost, if you live by the spirit, pick that person, you know. But I think it's important at some stage to have, uh, and that's what I appreciated when I first came here and I saw the conference office, it was diverse, right? The pastor was, was the president was Brazilian, who worked in Australia. And then you got Auric, you know, who's black, you know, the secretary. And then Denny, you know, who's in the, our treasurer, you know, who's Indonesian. And I went, this is so cool. Like, I honestly, for the first time in my career, I looked at, I looked at my admin and I went, I could fit here, you know, because it was so diverse. And, and I've never had that experience before. But to, I turned to my wife and I said, man, I love being here just because we just met Adcom and, and it was so diverse. And, and that's the power of when you have a minority group represented at the conference. Thanks again for listening to this episode of our podcast. As we end, I'd like to acknowledge that these conversations are recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Stolo Nation. With a big special thanks to our executive producer, Alexander Carpenter, our editor, Bryce Hallock, and to our creative team. We have Brittany May with logo design and Jared Jameson on audio. Also, a big shout out to our Spectrum friends over in New York City for their continued support of this program. Thanks.